I think the the key one is to challenge your commonly held beliefs. So if you think something is just common knowledge, you know, look for the research, see if there is any. You know, a lot of these topics haven't been researched yet, but really question whether or not there's evidence to support it. Um, because what we what we commonly believe may or may not be true today. You know, it might have been true with smaller letter sizes. It might have been true with different genetic lines. But we really need to sort of question and objectively evaluate all of the aspects of our pr production. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Odiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Evonik Animal Nutrition. Evonik stands for a holistic and sustainable value proposition for livestock production. It combines products and services and leverages digital solutions. This is all backed with high-value consultancy and deep customer understanding. Evonik turns science-based efficient nutrition, sustainable healthy nutrition, and precision livestock farming into value for customers and consumers. Hello, everyone. I'm your host for today's Swineit podcast. I'm Laura Greiner. And with me today, I have Dr. Catherine Vandepol from the University of Illinois. How are you today, Catherine? How are you doing? Good. Catherine, for our audience, would you mind giving them a little bit of background about who you are and where you're at today? So I originally grew up in California, um, traveled a little bit since then. And I went to junior college there, kind of got a general background and decided that I really wanted to work with animals. And so from there, I went to Utah State University and did a degree in animal, dairy and veterinary science with a minor in agribusiness. And I really enjoyed a lot of like the hands-on classes where we got to work with animals sort of one-on-one. -on -one. And so I was looking for research labs where I could continue with sort of more of the applied research. And I found Dr. Mike Ellis's lab here at the University of Illinois, and I've been here ever since. And uh, my master's degree with Dr. Ellis was looking at the effects of drinker type and room temperature on pig growth, row finishing performance, and then looking at different types of sow housing for sow reproductive performance. And then my PhD mainly focused on piglet preweaning mortality. And I completed that at the end of last year. And since then, I've been working on a master's in 
and statistics. Perfect. Well, we're glad to have you on today. And I think some of the conversation that, that you and I have had, as well as uh, just what you said here, as far as your research is actually very applicable and practical to what you know we're seeing and hearing from our producers today. Um, piglet survivability or pig survivability is a very big topic that we're having, not just in the United States, but around the world. And so I think let's start really there in terms of, of what you've seen and, and uh, you know, what some of your concerns are just based on some of your research. So I've done a fair amount of research with the preventing mortality, like I mentioned. Uh, a big aspect of that was looking at piglet temperature in the early postnatal period and sort of established that they go through a, a major decline in body temperature sort of within that first 30 minutes to an hour after birth. And if, if we saw a temperature decline like that in a full-grown human, it would be fatal. And so it's really incredible that they recover from that. But there's a lot of things that we can do to sort of help decrease the extent of that decline. Um, and it seems like some effects are stronger than others, like the drying and warming was more effective than just either one alone. But, you know, compared to doing nothing, any one of the interventions that we looked at had some effect. So whether that's drying the piglets, getting them in a warming box, both or whatever you can do um, in that early postnatal period uh, does seem to help quite a bit. Out of curiosity, what was the temperature difference between birth and an hour later? So the biggest difference was actually at 30 minutes, and it kind of depends on which study you look at because they differed a little bit in terms of the time of year. But I've got one here where it was a three degrees, three and a half degrees Celsius decline from birth to 30 minutes. And that's even very, very big. And it's even bigger for your low birth weight piglets. So that three and a half was for the average piglet. And then if you look at your piglets that are less than one kilo, that decline was, let's see, went to 33 degrees Celsius. So that was a seven degree drop in rectal temperature. So it's, it's really incredible that they can survive that. That is, that is. And so when you think about then, because we have this conversation a lot about being present during the farrowing process and what is the appropriate way to get a pig warm and dry, because um, we know a warm and dry pig will nurse versus a cold pig. But you mentioned that different types of methods produce different results. And so um, we heard a lot for a long time about hand drying or towel drying. We've heard, oh, you know, use the drying agents and put the Mistral or whatever uh, product you're using on the pig. So can you give us an idea of how much those improve the, the temperature of the animal? Yeah, so we compared different methods of drying them. So we looked at using paper towels versus a desiccant. And both of those were similar in terms of the effect. So for example, let's see, got it 30 minutes. They were about uh, a degree and a half. So somewhere between one and one and a half degrees warmer with those drying methods compared to the 
untreated control. Um, but the biggest drawback with the paper towels was the amount of time that it took to apply it because um, it's kind of a little bit, they're a little bit slimy, <laughs> you know, right after birth. And that doesn't absorb as well into a paper towel. And we found that the desiccant was quite a bit easier to apply, quite a bit faster. Another common method that I've seen in the industry is is using a split suckle box or you know some type of a like a Rubbermaid container with feed or drying agent in the tub under a heat lamp. Did you look at that method as well? Yeah. So we also had, it was another study where we looked at drying with the desiccant compared to putting them in a warming box. So that would be like you mentioned, a sort of a Rubbermaid tote that was placed underneath the heat lamp and then keeping them in there for 30 minutes, uh, since that was kind of the industry standard that we had found. And both of those, again, were pretty similarly effective to each other. Um, and so either one seemed to work reasonably well. I think they were about, let's see, got it here, about a two degree Celsius higher than the untreated control. But what was interesting was that the combination of drying them off and then putting them in that warming box for 30 minutes was about three degrees Celsius. So you got about another degree on top of that. And so the decline from birth to there was less than one degree Celsius in the first half hour for that combination of drying and warming. So it was incredibly effective <laughs> at minimizing the temperature decline. Um, but what was interesting is we followed that up with a study on preweaning mortality. So we applied those two treatments, just the control with no interventions, and then the combination of drying and warming. And we didn't find any effect overall. But what was really interesting was that the, there was an effect during the cooler months. So when the fairing room temperature was below 25 degrees Celsius, and then not even a numerical difference, like completely equal preweaning mortality when the fairing room temperatures were higher. So that kind of suggests that while it was effective at reducing the temperature decline at all times, it was only really effective in terms of mortality um, during the cooler portions of the year. Very good. Now that was going to be my next question. You know, I've done some work where we take blood samples and try to look at colostrum antibody levels in the blood 24 hours after they farrowed to try to get an idea of if it helped or not. Did you do anything like that or was it just strictly looking at the mortality? Yeah, so for the initial studies where we looked at the piglet temperature, we did collect um, blood samples at 24 hours after birth and looked at the immunocrit concentration. So that was um, done through the USDA lab where we just compared the immunocrit percentage between the treatments. And let me pull up those effects. I don't think there were any like significant benefits in terms of immunocrit percent of those treatments. But it was the second study where you had the lower temperatures or was it the first study from the environmental standpoint? The first study had the lower temperatures. Okay, so that's the one you did the immunocrits on as well. Yeah. 
Okay. So we didn't necessarily see a difference in immunocrit, but we still saw a difference in piglet survivability or mortality. Yeah. Did you note what the mortality was related to? We did. Um, the challenge with that is that it was carried out on a commercial farm, so it can be a little bit difficult to get accurate causes of mortality when you have farm staff recording those. And so we didn't include that in the report since it was, I think, about like 90% were reported as late on. And so we didn't have enough, you know, sort of confidence in the exact causes since we weren't there collecting it ourselves. And that's fair. And, and even then, I know it's sometimes hard because sometimes a scouring pig will get laid on. And so which did it really die of is, is yeah. always that argument as well. Mm -hmm. um, but that was my question was, did we just reduce light ons as a percent where maybe we weren't affecting the pig's ability to fight disease because immunocrats, immunocrits were similar, but yet we were able to pick up, you know, pigs weren't as chilled, so they were less likely to get crushed by mom. Um, so it might be something we need to continue to look at. Yeah, that's something that I think we have improved in some of our later studies where we looked at like piglet cross fostering is we started collecting those mortalities ourselves and really being critical of like what cause of mortality it was. And we also recorded like secondary causes. So like you mentioned, they might have been laid on, but they were also you know, starving or something like that. So we uh, sort of improved our, our record keeping as we went. So let's talk about cross-fostering a little bit. So okay, we're in our farrowing barn, we, we ferret out our pigs, we've got them warm and dry, preferably dry them and then put them into a heat box for 30 minutes. Sounds like that's the, the best thing, particularly in the winter months. So now those pigs have been out, they've gotten their milk. So what have you found in terms of cross-fostering that, that we should be considering? So there's been quite a bit, a lot of things that were very much unexpected and kind of challenge our sort of common knowledge or commonly held beliefs. Um, I think one of the least surprising was that litter size is a huge, important factor, um, particularly in relation to the sow's functional teat number. So that's something that I've seen recorded on farms, but sometimes not entirely rigorously, or sometimes it's not recorded at all. But the number of piglets, if you go over the functional teat number, really has a strong effect on piglet pre-weaning mortality. So just to help our audience understand a little bit, when you say functional teat, when are you looking at that? And what exactly are you using as your criteria to call it a functional teat? Yeah, so we looked at those um, usually the day before farrowing or the day of farrowing to sort of see what those underlines looked like with, without the piglets sort of getting in the way so we could get a, a good look at all of them. And we scored them in three different categories. So the first would be sort of an ideal teat. So it's elongated, there's no cuts, no defects, uh, and you can get milk out of it. The second one, second score would be not as ideal. So it's either really short or there's some cuts on it, some damage, but there's no 
nothing keeping it from functioning. Um, it might be small, but it, it does provide milk. And then the third category is that it's completely non-functional. So these would be teats that were like cut off if the sow like stood on it, um, that they were not formed properly in the first place. So sometimes you get a bit of a, a mammary tissue there, but there's no actual teat opening or that the teat openings are blocked or grown over. So you can't actually get milk out of them. And so we would check those um, as well. So basically, if they had a score of one or two, you would count them as functional. Okay, perfect. Perfect. And so um, setting the piglets up, counting the number of functional teeth, anything else in terms of cross-fostering that we should consider? Yeah, so we did several studies looking at the piglet birth weight within the litter when you cross-foster. So again, this kind of goes back to what we commonly hold as beliefs is that we should maybe cross-foster to have litters of equal birth weight. I've seen that recommendation a lot. So you put all your light pigs together, your, all your heavy pigs together. And so we wanted to sort of critically evaluate that compared to litters that had two or three of those sort of weighted pigs. So we divided the pigs into three birth weight categories. So your light, it would be less than a kilo at birth, your mediums would be one to one and a half, and then heavy would be over one and a half. And so we looked at those in, in litters just with their own birth weight category, or then mixed with like lights and mediums or medium and heavy or light, medium and heavy together. And generally what we found is that the heavier the other pigs in the litter, the more likely that pig was to die regardless of its birth weight. If you put a heavy pig with other heavy pigs, it will have a harder time, lower weaning weight, higher mortality. If you put a light pig with heavier pigs, same thing, lower weaning weight, higher mortality. But since you have a low proportion of your population that are light birth weight, that typically only 10 or 15% of your pigs would fall into that light birth weight category, overall, pre-weaning mortality was lower when you mixed piglets together from different birth weights. So if you had a litter of light, medium, and heavy pigs, the increase in performance for the heavy pigs offset the decrease in performance for the light pigs. So how would you recommend our producers cross-foster pigs based on size then today? Yeah, so... With the litter sizes that we evaluated, and again, this could differ a little bit if you have smaller or larger litters, but we looked at litters of 14 or 15 piglets after fostering on day one and mixing them with light, medium, and heavy piglets was pretty consistently the most economically beneficial. Very good. Anything else with frost fostering that we should consider? I think well, one of the things that we haven't published a full paper about yet, but is in my thesis. So if anybody wants to read about it, it's in there. But we looked at the effect of cross-fostering itself, and then also the effect of mixing piglets from multiple litters. So when you cross-foster, you can either you know, just add a few piglets from one other spot, or you could add piglets from like all over the room into one litter. And we wanted to see if there was any effect of 
doing that of any effect of like mixing those piglets from multiple places. And we got some very, very unexpected results. So cross fostering itself at 24 hours. So we just took a litter that remained intact on their sow that they were born to compared to a litter intact that moved sows. And there were no differences between those. So kind of suggesting that if you do cross foster within that 24 hour period, didn't seem to affect pre-meeting performance. But the litters that had piglets from multiple places did better than the litters that remained intact. And this was consistent across piglets of all birth weights. And it was like consistent across the study. So it really needs some further research on that because we don't know exactly why that happened, but it was a very strong effect. Uh, I think it was decreased mortality from about 11 to 12% down to 8%. And again, very much unexpected. That is very unexpected. I think, you know, some key things though that I'm hearing you say is, um, you know, the pigs were, were set up appropriately to begin with. So they were allowed to nurse off of mom before <laughs> the cross fostering occurred, right? You waited about yes. 24 hours, then you moved them. So we made sure they still got mom's colostrum, if you yes. will. And then, and then we made this movement. So I think that's actually very interesting. And I'd be curious to know what would be causing a lower mortality with, with yeah. mixing a litter. Yeah, the one thing that we did control for that would need to be sort of evaluated too is that we handled all of those piglets the same. So if we pulled them off the sow and then moved them and then placed them, the non-fostered piglets or the intact litters would also be put into totes, but then they would just be put back where they came from. So if you're not actually cross-fostering, you wouldn't handle them that way. So there may be some effects of handling that would need to be evaluated as well. But if you handle the pigs the same, it's suggesting that, you know, putting them with other piglets seem to have some benefit. Yeah, that's and a good I would, point. Yeah, uh, I would guess that it, it could be related to behavior. That's something that um, we don't know enough about that we really need to do some more research into is, you know, sort of that suckling behavior and how, mixing piglets together kind of disrupts that and whether there's maybe some benefit to it. Yeah, I think also it'd be interesting to look at, at um, how well you mix the gilt litters versus the older fowl litters together. Right? Yeah, that was something else with the cross-fostering studies we did. We only used sows that were on their second litter or more. So we stayed away from sort of the gilt guilt litter issue, um, but that has its own sort of implications. And there's also implications for the sows themselves. You know, there's an increasing interest in whether the size of the litter or the size of the piglets affects the udder stimulation and how that affects her rebreeding, her subsequent litter performance, her subsequent milk production. And so there's a lot of questions there that kind of interact with each other that make this question very complicated to answer. Yeah, sounds like you have a lot of work to do. 
uh, keep myself in a job? <laughs> yes, yes. No, I think those those are great questions, and they're they're very important questions and ones that we need to answer. And I do like the fact that in your studies you remove the guilt, um, the guilt letters, so that what you really are looking at is truly just the impact of moving. And and we've seen that across situations, even where um, maybe we have two litters side by side and one litter is scouring and the other litter is not. And we simply flip the litters and switch the sows and both litters then recover from, from diarrhea and why the other litter doesn't become sick. Yeah. You know, we don't know. <laughs> so there's a lot of questions with sows and, and mammary function. And so I think, you know, tackling them step-by-step step is a great way to approach it. Yeah. I think, that's kind of how you have to do it when we're missing so much information is to sort of take one question at a time and try to control for as much else as you can. And then hopefully once we get some individual answers, we can start combining things and seeing how they might interact with each other. Absolutely. Well, one of the other things that we'll touch on just a little bit here is um, you also looked at some different types of gestation housing. Um, as you know, sows are kind of my passion in life. So I'd be curious to know what you found in terms of, of individual stalls versus retrofitting pens. Um, certainly with some of the conversations that are happening in the industry right now, I think it's actually a very good time to have this conversation. So would you mind sharing a little bit about what you found? Absolutely. So the study, this study was part of my master's thesis, and it was a very long-term study. So they actually retrofitted the farm with it completely empty and then brought in gilts. And we followed those all the way through to parity six. And obviously we had some like replacement gilts come in, um, but we followed those through for quite a long time. And the retrofitting that they did was, so you had six let's see you had eight stalls um four on each side that were facing opposite each other and the backs of the crates were cut off and then gates were put to sort of block off those eight feeding spaces so each sow had the space that they would normally have in the crate plus the alleyway space in between them but that way you can keep the same number of sows as in a crated system in the same space. So one of the biggest differences is a lot of like retrofitted systems or ESF systems, they'll completely replace the feeding lines. They'll have to make bigger pens um, and they have to keep fewer sows in them for the floor space. And so the study was kind of looking at what if we didn't and what if we utilize the space that we have currently and tried to keep sort of the same production level out of the farm. Um, and again, one of the major benefits is you don't have to replace the feeding system and you can kind of just keep a lot of the structures that are already there. Um, and we found generally no effects between the stall housed and the group housed sows. Um, one of the interesting things was that the pre-weaning mortality was a little bit higher for the group housed sows. And again, we'd need to look at behavior to kind of figure out why, but maybe partially because they weren't used to being in crates and the, the farrowing systems were crated. 
but that was an interesting sort of side effect. We also had a greater number of cell removals. So if they're in a crate and they start losing body condition, obviously you don't really need to do anything with them. Like you feed them more, you treat them, but you don't have to move them. Whereas if they're in a pen and they start getting less competitive, you have to take them out um, and sort of put them in an individual stall to help treat them better. And so you need to sort of account for that space in the system that you need sort of a section of stalls for those fall behind sows, so to speak. Very good but point. in general, the the production was fairly similar. And I thought that was very promising for being able to retrofit um, some of these feeding systems. Out of curiosity, when did you put them into their pens? Was that right after weaning or you know, after they were confirmed pregnant or after breeding? Can you give us just a little bit more? Yeah, so it was 35 days. So after they were confirmed pregnant, um, we wanted to target a time where it would be easier to breed in the stalls, um, but after implantation, so we didn't risk increasing the sort of rejection rate. Perfect. Yeah, that's that's always the big question right now is, can we breed them in groups and what does that look like? And and even just yeah. if we move them at day 35, what do we see? So I think that's very useful information for our audience. Yeah, I think from what I've heard from farm staff, um, I think it's potentially possible to breed in groups, but I know that there's a lot of resistance on the farm side, just in terms of safety and in terms of ease of breeding in a group system. Uh, it's quite a bit more difficult. So I don't know exactly, you know, which one is better on the sows or the piglets, but uh, there may be some difficulties just in sort of implementation of group breeding. Right. Yeah. And I think those are the studies that we need to do now to better understand um, where we're at, particularly with the genetics that we use in the United States relative to the European breeds. We're already using some of those methods in Europe, but they are different animals. And so how we use those in production might be different. Right? They may respond differently. I think there's also a major difference in terms of the labor force. I know in the U.S., a lot of producers are having a very hard time getting and keeping skilled labor and training. I mean, if you have people that you know aren't retained in a system and then you're short-staffed and then you just hire someone and need to get them working as soon as possible, you don't necessarily get the time to train them properly. And then you have you know, reduced performance, it increases stress on your employees. They feel like they don't know what they're doing and therefore also reduces employee retention. And you sort of end up in this vicious cycle um, that isn't good for like your staff or your pigs. Yeah, that's a very good point. Very good point. And we've had a couple of podcasts recently on training labor and mm -hmm. how to retain labor and some of the challenges as far as finding the labor resources in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, labor tends to come up a lot in our conversations today, not just here in the swine industry, but elsewhere. So it's a very, very appropriate conversation. Well, um, Catherine, as we kind of wrap up our time today, um, really, I'd like to ask you just a few questions. But before I do that, are there any key points that you'd like our audience to, to take home with them today from our conversation? 
Well, I think the the key one is to challenge your commonly held beliefs. So if you think something is just common knowledge, um, you know, look for the research, see if there is any. You know, a lot of these topics haven't been researched yet, but really question whether or not there's evidence to support it. Um, because what we what we commonly believe may or may not be true today. You know, it might have been true with smaller letter sizes. It might have been true with different genetic lines. But we really need to sort of question and objectively evaluate all of the aspects of our production. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, production continues to change. Genetics continue to change. And, and we need to challenge what we do know and what we don't know and use science to make our decisions. Perfect. Perfect summary. It is time to our famous three. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, Gestahl manufactures the original wireless standalone swine feeding system. Designed by pork producers for pork producers. They are simple, reliable, and provide peace of mind 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Gestahl is not just manufactured by an equipment company, but by a family pork production business with a slat-level understanding. Gestahl, always one step ahead in swine feeding. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. The questions that we like to ask all of our guest speakers really evolve around three key questions. The first one we like to ask is, do you have a favorite swine resource or a go-to that, that you'd like to share with our audience today? So I typically Google Scholar most of what I look for, but I, I would have to say like in general, some of the resources that are more geared towards producers that also seem backed by science. I've seen some of the extension articles like out of Iowa or Illinois um, and even some of like the genetic companies like PIC, I know, produces handbooks and they seem to really base those on research and sort of summarize them in a way that's very usable and relevant. Very good. How about any non-swine resource books or any books in general that you might recommend to our audience? So I'm a bit of a nerd, <laughs> I hope you couldn't tell. And um, like I mentioned before, I'm doing my master's in statistics. And so a lot of the books that I've found that are you know, really helpful uh, would kind of relate to that and tend to be the ones I like are the ones that are a little bit more applied. So they have examples and like code, like R code or SAS code that you can use. Um, one of those is statistical inference. And a lot of them are, you know, you can find them online, free PDFs, downloads and stuff like that. Uh, but there's a lot of really good resources out there that kind of make it a little bit more approachable and easier to follow. I think that's a really good suggestion. So many of us um, need continual review or we have some challenges, particularly when you're doing production work in trying to appropriately set up correct statistical models and then, of course, analyzing that data. So I think that's great to have for references around statistics. Yeah, one of my favorite classes was a experimental design class, and it was um, it was an applied 
class. So we actually had you know, realistic examples of different types of statistical designs that we could use and kind of utilize some of those in my cross-fostering research. So for example, the one where we looked at the birth weight category and the, the weight variation within litter, a lot of those tools that I got were from that class. And I don't think we can necessarily answer some of these questions without getting a little bit outside of our comfort zone in terms of like experimental design. That's a very good point. Very good point. So the last question I'd like to ask you today is if you think about someone in your field that you view as successful, what might be a characteristic or a trait that they possess that you think has helped them become successful? I think a strong drive for knowledge, like a, a curiosity, I guess would be the best word for it, and a, de a desire to learn new things. Um, also, I guess work ethic would sort of follow along with that. Uh, most of the people that I know that have been very successful, they work extremely hard uh, to, to really get the answers to those questions and they're really driven to make sure that things happen. Catherine, we do want to thank you for your time today. We greatly appreciate you being on. And again, for our audience, this is Dr. Catherine Vanderpool, who's currently at the University of Illinois. Thank you and take care. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.